Well, now last week, uh, if you got your Bibles today, we want to turn back to Proverbs chapter 24. And last week, <clears throat> I, I gave you one of what I think is probably the greatest uh, places in the Bible that talks about one of the eluding aspects of being a Christian. I, I don't think that when Paul probably wrote his epistles and he was dealing with the church, I don't think he ever thought that we would get to the point where we're at today in Christianity where uh, resting in God is such a foreign concept. And, um, you know, if there's any place that will be our weakness and will be the gateway or the entry level to our demise as a child of God, it'll be when we can't have the ability to rest in what Christ has done for us and who we are in Him. You know, one of the reasons why we do Discipleship One is to give you a foundation of not only Christ and salvation and everything that goes along with it, but to give you a foundation in, in the basic concept of how to rest. Discipleship Two is really a set of lessons that deals with what really changed about you the day you got saved. And we talk about those seven things. That's so you can understand now that you've been through the basic fundamentals that you can understand who you really are in Christ. That is so vital in, in, in getting to that rest where you can trust Him. And you know, the Bible talks about in Philippians 4, 7, the peace that passes all understanding that will keep your hearts and minds. That peace only comes from the rest that we have in God. Uh, you know, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 talks about the fact that that will keep Him in perfect peace. You know, and it goes back to the fact that you trusted in the Lord and that your mind is stayed on Him. I, I told you last week how that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, that the Bible says that the peace of God should rule in your hearts. And it comes back to the fact of your trust. And I, I gave you, uh, you know, two amazing verses last week. Proverbs chapter 24 was our verse that we were uh, going to. And then Psalms chapter 37, which was an addendum to Proverbs chapter 24. And what, what two amazing verses. Getting to the place in your life and in my life that you learn to rest in the Lord. And I, and I showed you the process. I showed you that, first of all, he said, fret not because of evildoers. And we took that out of the equation. And then I gave you a simple three-point outline that you start by trusting in the Lord, trusting what He's done, trusting what He says. We could talk about that all day today. And then the second thing was to delight yourself, recognizing what God has really given you and what you have in Him. And then the third thing was committing your way. Quit going your way and start going His way. And when you put those three things in your life, then you have the ability, and get them working for you, then you have the ability to rest in the Lord. So I hope that you took that last week, and I hope that you, uh, it's a great outline that you can, you can sit down and put through your Bible and really uh, put it into your own life. And, you know, Proverbs chapter 24 has, uh, has the whole book of Proverbs, but chapter 24 has been a great chapter. And uh, we have been talking about, over the last couple of months, out of Proverbs chapter 24, about the greatest possession that we have and that God has given us, and that is the Word of God. And it goes without saying, without the Bible, there is no rest. And, and how in Christianity today, supposedly, men of God, supposedly, men who call themselves pastors, who standing in pulpits just like I am today, supposedly men of God, pastors, teachers, theologians, want to strip you of that possession and take it from you. 
the greatest possession God ever gave you. You know, if you would stop and think about it and just ask yourself, what is the greatest possession God gave you that sets you apart? Most people would say salvation, but that's not true. Bible says that faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If it wasn't for a Bible, you wouldn't know anything about salvation. So when you boil it all down, the bottom line is the greatest possession that God ever gave man was the word of God. And it's hard for me. I would think it would be hard for anybody. But it's hard for me to get my head wrapped around the fact that I know I live in, a, in an imperfect world. I know there is nothing in this world that is right, that is perfect, that is good. It's hard for me to grasp the fact that God, who already knows I'm living in an imperfect world, would give me an imperfect Bible to try to me to live in this imperfect world. I mean, there has to be a standard of perfect someplace. And I, and I know, and I know, uh, you know, we say, well, God is perfect. Well, that's great, but he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He ain't going to do me any good. Well, how's that going to help me? Well, I'll tell you how it helps me, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we have now the written Word of God, the, the mind of Christ. And today in Proverbs, we're going to enter into a new level of truth. I'm always looking for things that uh, will help you better understand and put you in a better position to explain. Uh, and this verses today really explain and expose what's really going on today. And I think in a, a very practical way. This is not going to be a deep sermon. It's not going to be a theological sermon. It's going to be a very practical sermon based on just some very practical verses that really, I think, will help you. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21 22 and, and 23. It says, My son, fear thou the Lord and the king, and meddle not with them that are given to change. For their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons uh, in judgment. Charles, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the sermon this morning for me, please? Amen. Now, I don't know any other place in the Bible that really shows us the fundamental problem today with what we all struggle with in Christianity. This church, me as your pastor, as a church, we don't suffer from an identity crisis. We know who we are. Most churches, most Christians, most certainly do. They are uh, unbelievably so. They're unsure about everything. They have been taught a bunch of things that they believe, but none of them understand why they believe it. They, they have been given a set of rules and a lot of Bible verses and hear a lot of sermons, but they couldn't go to the Bible themselves and exact out of the Word of God whether what they've been told is truth or not. And that's always a dangerous position to be in. And, uh, you know, as I said, we know who we are. We know 
uh, we know where we came from. We know and understand our roots. And we know why we believe what we believe. Now, before I get into this any farther, and like I said, it's going to be a simple little message today. I want to tell you, I don't make an apology to anybody for that. The Bible is the Bible. I am so sorry for you if you live in a Christianity where a perfect God, having you and me live in an imperfect world, couldn't do anything better but give us an imperfect Bible. I feel sorry for you if that's where you're at. Now, the name of our church, and I get asked this a lot, the name of our church is Old Paths Baptist Church. I, I, I like to look at the names of churches. I think it spe- says something. And, uh, you know, uh, you'll have churches that, uh, uh, that they, they want to suggest some kind of teaching by their name. I understand that. I think that's good. You'll find some churches that uh, call themselves New Hope Baptist Church. They want you to know that coming to their church, you can find the new hope. I'm good with that. I think that's neat. You have some churches that call themselves Abundant Life Baptist Church. And they want you to go there and hopefully you'll find the abundance of life that can only be found in in the Lord Jesus. I I like that. Some churches call themselves Calvary Baptist Church. I I get that. Uh, They want to draw the attention to Calvary when Christ died on the cross. I, I think that's good. You don't find it much around here, but up in New York and New England, a lot of the churches are called First Bible Baptist Church. I I like that because they want you to know that first is the Bible, and I think that's good. You'll find some churches that call themselves Grace Baptist Church, and they want you to know that that's where grace abounds. You'll find some churches that want to add to that, and they call their church Grace and Truth Baptist Church. They want you to know that there's grace there, but there's also truth. I got to tell you, one of my favorites, I think, and I know the pastor for years, I haven't seen him for years, but he was a nice guy. His, uh, uh, His name, his church was Antioch Baptist Church. I thought that always said something, understanding a little bit about the Bible. I, my home church, um, Came from, I came from what was called the Canton Baptist Temple. And, uh, you know, you'll find that, that, that they all come out, there was a bunch of them, Akron Baptist Temple, Mansfield Baptist Temple, uh, Kansas City Baptist Temple. I mean, uh, they were all over the country. And all of those churches, you know, what's in a name? If you know what's going on, you can figure out. I, for years, people have asked me, why did all those churches call themselves Canton Baptist Temple, Dayton Baptist Temple? trying to figure out what Baptist had to do with the temple. And, you know, I asked Dr. Henniger that before he died years ago when I was still in Ohio, because they were everywhere. And he told me, he said, well, he says, when we all split from J. Frank Norris, there were two major churches that Frank Norris was operating out of. One of them was in Detroit, Michigan, and the other one was in Texas, Dallas, I believe, or Fort Worth. And J. Frank Norris would actually preach at one in the morning, get on a plane and fly back and preach. He was pastoring both churches. And they were huge churches. Well, the big fight and the big split took place, and, and a bunch of the Bible guys left J. Frank Norris, and they and Beecham Vick, who was his uh, associate, uh, they got in a big fight. 
And what J. Frank Norris did is he took the, the church in Texas, Beecham Vic took the church up in Michigan, Detroit, and the name of the church up there was Temple Baptist Church. Now, all the guys who left Norris to go with Beecham Vic, who is the grandfathers of our church here, Wendell Zimmerman, they were all Norris's boys. Henniger was Norris's boys. All of them were. They wanted to set themselves apart from J. Frank Norris down in Texas, so they wanted to associate with Temple Baptist up in Detroit, so they all called their churches Canton Baptist Temple. The temple associating with up there in Detroit. What's in the name? Churches pick names that want to say something. The name of our church is Old Paz Baptist Church. I did that for a reason. I like the verse. I like what it says. But I always wanted to find out what people really knew about the Bible. Because they'll say, oh, you, what, you pastor church? Yeah, what's the name of your church? Old Paz Baptist Church. What? If you would say to me, the name of your church is Old Paz Baptist Church, I'd think of Jeremiah 6.16. Because I know where it's at in the Bible. Jeremiah 6.16 says, well, wait a minute, I'm not done yet. And then you have... You have some really stupid names. <laughs> names that don't mean anything. I knew a Baptist church. There was a huge Baptist church, and for a while it was a fundamental church. They changed the name from, from their Baptist church, and now it's just called Connection Point. <laughs> that could be a singles dating group on Friday, Saturday night someplace. You know that? What does that say? I see them all the time where they talk about something that, that is totally abstract from anything in the Bible and is supposed to mean something. I'll tell you what it means. It means you're the nowhere man, as the old 50s song, going into nowhere land, going nowhere. How many know that song? All right. He was the nowhere man going to the nowhere land. All his life, where did he go? He went nowhere. You know what the second verse is? He was the no. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Jeremiah, <laughs> Jer I'll get into pine tree here in a few minutes. Jeremiah chapter 6, 16 says, Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is in the good way? And where is the good way? And wherein uh, you stand, uh, you, you shall find rest for your souls. He's telling us that the rest that we're all looking for is found in the old paths. Israel, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, he's writing that to Israel. Israel was told because of their spiritual condition and all the new things that they were getting into that if they wanted the rest that God promised them, they had to go back to the old path. You know, that's a good sermon to preach to God's people today. If you want the peace of God that passes all understanding and you want the power of God in your life, I got some good advice for you. Quit messing with all this flingly stuff that's out there today and just get back to the old paths. When I gave you in my list of threes the last couple of Thursday nights, one of them I gave you was the old path based on the old way, based on the old book. That's where we're at. 
And we make no apology for it. You want to make fun of us? You want to laugh about it? You want to sneer at us? Just show up on a Thursday night and we'll see what you're made of. No problem at all. And I won't even do it. I'll just put some of my girls on you. They'll rip you apart. And the mess that we're in today will be bottom line found in the verse that we want to look at today. One small word that we are warned against in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21, and that is the word, if you haven't guessed it already, the word change. Everything that Christianity has once stood for has been changed today, very slowly. It wasn't apparent. It didn't all end on a Monday and go into apostasy on a Tuesday. We're talking about decades of a slow process of change. When I was back in high school, in biology class, uh, my biology teacher was talking about physics and all of the things that uh, go on, and he's talking about boiling a frog. And he says, if you want to boil a frog, you don't get, and he's alive, you don't get the water boiling and it'll throw the frog in. He'll jump out. What you do is put the frog in a pan of cool water, put him on the burner, and slowly turn up the heat and the frog doesn't recognize what's happening before he croaks. <laughs> and it has been a very slow process. And it was a process that not many people in Christianity ever saw it because the only way you could see it was to be dialed into the Word of God in the first place. And I told you last week that God will always work through an established pattern in everything that He does. And God and those patterns, listen to me, they're absolute. They're the only constant in a world of inconsistency. They never change. Hebrews 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And the patterns that he used were to establish a pattern of truth. Listen to me. That for you and me who are living in a world where there is no pattern of truth could find the way. And that way is called the old path. Let me ask you a question. And I know people don't think like this. In 4,000 years of Israel's history with God, in 4,000 years of Israel's history with God, name one, and everything he gave them, every principle he laid down, every pattern that he established, just name me one time he changed one of those patterns. He didn't. Now, you'd think that that would mean something to somebody paying attention. Oh, but the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious leaders of Europe, the Bible scholar crowd of Israel, they changed everything that they could Amen. to the point that at the first coming of Christ, Israel did not even resemble what they were to be in the Old Testament. And today, they're even worse. And I might add that today Christianity like Israel has completely changed everything that God gave the church and told them to hold on to as truth. 
Now, the church is told not to meddle in this verse. The church, Christianity, has been told not to meddle with those that are given to change. Somebody says, who are you? I'm somebody who is not going to change. I believe what the Bible says. I believe it's God absolute truth. That's all I need. Somebody sang one time and wrote a little song. God said it. That, I believe it. That settles it for me. And people were singing that all around and thought, what a great song that is. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. What well, the truth of the matter is, God said it. That settles it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's settled. And if you want the peace, got to get on the old path. If you want the, on the old path, you got to quit meddling with the guys who want to change what God established and said he'd never change. That's simple, isn't it? Now, is that hard? Am, am I, am I, I mean, I know you all are an intelligent crowd, especially you young people. You're much smarter than me. But if I can get it, why can't, why can't other people get it? I cannot impress upon you enough the importance of an unchanging Bible and an unchanging Christianity. In this world, as I said, there is nothing absolute. Society changes, and man will always adjust as society goes. And society degenerates. Society doesn't get better on its own. Society starts at a point and goes down. It's the first and second law of thermodynamics. Things left on themselves degenerate. They don't go up, they go down. We as God's people in every church probably in this city, we would denounce evolution. And we would think that evolution is, is of the devil. We would think that evolu- the very fact that, that God is not creator and he has to, uh, an evolution process brought, you would, every church, no matter where you're at, you would stand against that. But those same churches would be okay with an evolving Bible. That every two or three years, God's got to bring it along and revolve it and make it better because the last one wasn't as good as the one you just got. Where does that end? I don't know where it ends, but I can tell you where it starts, in the pit of hell with evolution. You look at our country from 1940 to where we're at today. Total change. Everybody with half a brain cell sees the trouble we're in as a nation. I mean, we've got to the point now that you, Congress in Washington can't get anything done. I mean, they're trying to get a Supreme Court guy in, and I don't care one way or the other. I just think it's goofy. Here's a guy that all of his public life served the country and whatever, and maybe he's a good guy, I don't know. But they're going to kick him out because of something he did in high school? God help you. Especially you, Troy. You kidding me? 30, 40 years ago, when he was a junior in high school, that, that, that takes him out of public service? We're in trouble. And the reason we're in trouble is because of the change. The value system that was instilled in our country by our founding fathers. 
And there were some values that once were held in America. The very concept of God and the Bible. I mean, when the founding fathers, they asked Thomas Jefferson to do the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. He did, and he brought it back. And the founding fathers said, there's only one reference to God in this. We can never as a nation forget what God has done for us. Put some more in. And he went back and he put a total of four. And you know what they are? He talked about God as a lawmaker, God as creator, God as supreme judge, and God as a protector. You know why we want to take God in trust off our money today? Some things have changed. Somebody said, all these school shootings, they're so terrible. Get rid of the guns. Get rid of the guns. What's the matter with you? You know what? You took the Bible and prayer out of schools. The guns are going to come in. I mean, come on. You take God and the Word of God and any society and see what comes in. Family. Families don't talk anymore. Maybe yours do. Most parents, when their kid goes into a school and shoots up people or they go do something stupid or they kill somebody or they rape somebody or they do something terrible or they die, the parent says, I had no idea he was into that. That's because you have no idea about nothing. Families are destroyed today. Patriotism in our country. I get it. I understand. But Romans chapter 13 says that it's your job and my job to be loyal to the the government that God has given to us. We burned the American flag. We trampled in the streets. We laugh about it. We try to do everything that we can to bring down the government. We have a seated president. I don't know what you think about him. It doesn't make any difference to me who's in president. But what I'm telling you is this, there was a time when whoever was president was respected. And all they're doing now is both sides want to destroy the very authority that sits at the top of this government, no matter what you think about him. And all that comes down to the fact that it's all changed. During World War II, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the next day, the next day, the next day, there were kids quitting their job. There were kids lying about their age so they could go. And the lines at the recruiting station were blocks long of young men that wanted to fight and serve for their country. A great, the great tragedy that happened at Pearl Harbor. Not today. When I was in when I was in the army and you'd go through the airport wearing a uniform, hippies come up and spit on you. They'd wear American flags on the rear ends. I always thought that was good because when I needed to kick them, I knew right where to aim. <laughs> they burned the flag. They burned their draft cards. They went to Canada. Marriage. Complete breakdown. Divorces today are, are, are as numerous as cereal in a grocery store. When I grew up in the 1950s and the 60s, nobody got a divorce. You know who got divorced? 
Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. <laughs> who knows who Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton is? Well, thank God there's some of you that know what's going on. Nobody got divorced. In the tabloids, the scandal was what movie star was getting a divorce? Normal people didn't do it. Oh, they did, but, I mean, not like today. It was a rare commodity. It was, you know why? Because there was some values. People understood that marriage was a commitment. And the movie stars and a famous life. I mean, Liz Taylor was married about eight or nine times. We had a girl in our church one time that beat that record, by the way, but she was married eight or nine times. Oh, yeah, ten times. Now it's all gone through change. You see, there was some, and there was a time when there were some values in Christianity that set us apart from all the other goofiness in the world. Today, if you call yourself a fundamentalist, you're laughed at. And I understand that there's some goofy people who, who, who hold the term fundamentalist, but the people who laugh, and probably even the people that, that take the name, don't know where, where it started. The name fundamentalist started with J. Frank Norris when he broke with the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And he started his own Bible Christianity based on a King James 1611 authorized version. And he, he gave birth to the fundamental movement because you know what his cry was? Let's get back to the fundamentals. The Southern Baptists were teaching that Genesis and Adam and Eve and the Bible were a myth. They were teaching that salvation wasn't by the blood of Christ. They had completely apostatized. He came out of that and he led us back to the fundamentals. Hence the phrase fundamentalist. And today we have chained the truth that is, that is absolute into a gray mush of uncertainty and phoniness. Revelation chapter 3 verse 15 tells that, that the church of Laodicea is neither cold nor hot. It's a lukewarm church. It's not completely dead into apostasy. But it's not on fire and doing the things of God. It's right where in the middle. And God says, I hate that. And he spewed the angel out of his mouth. And the reason for that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, and other places in the Bible, is because of leaven. Leaven is false doctrine. Leaven is bad teaching. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, that a little leaven leaveth a whole lump. And that's what's happened. And the process is, is so easy to see once you have a Bible that kind of gets all the smoke blown away. And, and it, to me, it's always been an amazing thing how the devil pulled all of this off. And as I said, it was not an overnight process. It was a 50, 60, 70 year turning up the heat a little bit of line until this morning the frog is dead. the lessons from history that God's people will never learn. Around 1900, around the 18, uh, 1880s, 1890s, uh, a movement came into being which was called uh, neo-evangelicalism. Now, evangelical means to evangelize. But the neo meant that this was going to be a new 
evangelism. And it was a movement to bring Christianity into an accredited way of thought. In other words, when the devil put this forward, he wanted to get the idea out there that you as a common man could not be trusted with the Bible. It's been called a reconstruction of theology. Simply put, that they wanted to take the Bible out of the hands of the common man and put it back into the realm of scholarship. They thought that you and I could not be trusted because of our lack of education. They thought for sure that you and I could not be trusted with the Bible because we're a bunch of dumb Ozark hillbillies. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the old nation of Israel have come back and resurrected into the form of the Bible scholars today. And during this period of time, it was a neo, neo, new evangelicalism. It was a shift from preaching the Bible to teaching. It was a shift from hard-dying Bible doctrine that had been the established foundation of Christianity now into a gray mush where nobody really believes anything. The key word here is compromise. Compromise means that you can reach more people. It isn't about truth anymore. Now the number one aspect is getting people saved. But you're in a fruitless effort if you think you're going to get somebody saved without any truth. They took the Bible from the common man and they put it back into the realm of scholarship. A good Christian school around in Kansas City that would fit the bill, and I'm sure there's more than one, would be uh, Calvary Bible College out there at old Richard Gabauer's Air Force Base. Calvary's been around for many, many, many years. And uh, Calvary Bible College is an absolute cesspool. There isn't one stick of truth any place in the place. They are completely gone of any truth whatsoever. It's rift with Calvinism, predestination. There's no truth in it. Then they all go the same way. And the kind of neo-evangelical churches that you will find today, just so you know, and you, next time you're driving down the street, just pay attention. Look at the church marquees. Look at the names. They won't have any denomination affiliation on their name. It'll be Grace Church, Community Church, Berean Church, Village Church, Harvest Church, a Bible Church, an Outreach Center, First Family Church, Community Family Center. Great, I had to drive for 20 miles to pick this up yesterday. It's all non-denominational. They stand for nothing. There's absolutely nothing. Billy Graham is the greatest example of this, and I'm not knocking Billy Graham any way, shape, or form. I'm just straightening the facts. Billy Graham started out as a Baptist. He wound up as a neo-evangelical. If you get some of his old tapes back in the 40s, late 40s, he's preaching in Madison Square Garden in New York. I mean, he is preaching the hell out of them. His hair is all sweaty, stringy all over the place. He's sweating through his suits. He's got to have a thing to wipe his face off, and he's giving them, he's giving them, he's giving it to them. He's preaching hell so hot that they could feel the heat. But when he winds up, after the neo evangelists get through with him, he doesn't believe there's a hell anymore. 
He now believes that the Muslims are all going to heaven. He called Pope John the greatest Christian that ever lived. Once you lose your doctrine, you have no moorings of where you go. In 1994, they had what they called the Catholic Evangelical Accord. In 1994, not that many years ago. In 1994, they got together and had a Catholic Evangelical Accord. It was all of the head Catholics and all of the neo-evangelical crowd coming together to decide how that they were going to win people to Christ in the third millennium. All the neo-evangelical guys, a lot of the pastors that you're connected with in your church, if you're listening to this, all signed that accord. They signed to accord with the devil's church. They signed an accord with a church that believes that they are the only true church. And that church in the Council of Trent in 1500 put out over 200 anathemas, that's curses, against people just like that. And they never were rescinded. And if you pushed come to shove any Jesuit, any priest, about these other neo-evangelical churches coming in, could they go to heaven? Their stand would still be the same. You can't go to heaven without being a Roman Catholic. And yet, your church, your group, your people signed that concordance and aligned with the Roman Catholic Church. And then you get upset with me, some of you idiots. You get upset with me because I tell you the NIV is the devil's Bible. When your church signed a concordance with the devil's church. Now, how long again when you were born with you without oxygen? This is why so many Baptist churches that once stood for the truth are now taking Baptist off their names. There were many, many churches that once held the truth and preached the truth that don't preach it anymore, and they've all went that evangelical crowd, that neo-evangelical crowd, so they take Baptist off their name. And they think they're doing that because it's going to reach more people. They think they're doing that because they don't want to be associated with the Baptist. Now, I'm the first one that's going to tell you there are some screwy Baptists. They don't want to be associated with that. I don't have a problem with that because somebody says, are you a Baptist? And I said, I'm a Baptist with an explanation. And I explained to them what kind of Baptist I am. I'm not a crazy Baptist. I'm a Bible-believing Baptist. I'll never take Baptist off the name of this church, no matter what all the crazy other Baptists do, because at the end of the day, the Baptist church was the only true church that came out of the Reformation, and the word Baptist, we are the only group in the history of Christianity that got our name from the greatest enemy of Christianity, the Roman Catholic Church, which you signed a concordance with after you took Baptist off their name. Right. 
We got the name Baptist because we were against baptizing babies for salvation, and we were against baptism and generation for salvation. So they called us Anna Pedro Baptist, against children baptism. Then they called us Anabaptist, and then they just got tired of saying it so long, they just said Baptist. Somebody said, man, where do, you, where do you find stuff like that? It's a conspiracy. They hide it in books. <laughs> Around the same time, there was what we call the birth of neo-orthodoxy. The word orthodoxy means sound in the faith. Sound in Bible doctrine. Ah, but this is neo-orthodoxy, the new orthodoxy. It found its roots in the midst of religious liberalism. Their mindset is that they changed the Bible, they changed the message to accept everybody. Everybody's God's child. There's no sin, there's no hell, there's no judgment. Man is okay, and God will change his standard and bring it down to man, so man will now accept it while God accepts whatever man is doing. And, of course, uh, no little return of Christ. They're either amillennial or postmillennial. So as society goes, so goes the church. This is why you have them today bringing in gays and lesbians into the church, and it's okay. They're pastors. This is where the women pastors come in, and most of them are lesbians. This is where, that's why they probably make good preachers because they hate men. And boy, they could give it to you in the pulpit, I promise you. <laughs> they all teach baptism for salvation. This is where the social gospel gets preached. This is where all of the liberals uh, and all of these churches are all connected to the political agenda. It was in a move to destroy any and all truth in the church and bring it into a worldly system. Now, you want an example in Kansas City that does this? It would be the Kansas City Bible College downtown and probably Midwest Seminary too. Uh, they're totally apostate. They don't believe anything. It's all psychology. And your churches that believe this would be your Methodist churches, your Lutheran churches, your Presbyterian churches, your Anglican churches, your Free Evangelical churches, your Episcopalian churches, your Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and of course, uh, Church of Christ, not churches, but the Church of Christ, and of course, Unity. And these are called Protestant churches. They're called Protestant churches because they protested and came out of the Reformation, so they're called Protestants. They came out of Rome, and now they've all went back to Rome. I didn't come out of Rome. I ain't going back to Rome. You know why? I ain't going to change. I'm who I am. I'm what I am. And the fact that you can trace your roots back to Rome, boy, I can trace my roots a lot farther than that. And my roots are better than yours. Then the third satanic organization, and I want to put underline the word satanic, was the charismatic movement that starts around 1900 out in Los Angeles in the Azula Street Mission and then over in Topeka, Kansas. This is the final bullet in the head of, of, of Christianity uh, and the Church of Jesus Christ. These three working together, combining together, overwhelmed Christianity and the attraction to scholarship, the attraction to uh, a pastor learning Greek and Hebrew, 
a language that his people don't know. So he can stand in the pulpit and hold that over you. That little thing that he can hold over your head that whatever you say, he can always twist a Greek word out another way to prove you wrong. Every pastor ought to not be any smarter than his people. And he had to lay it out to the people and they had to get as good as he is in the Bible. You know why? So you can keep him accountable. If he keeps you accountable with the Word of God, you ought to be able to keep him accountable. But you see, when you have that Greek and the Hebrew and some little Ozark, Ozark hillbilly raises his hand and says, well, I don't think that's correct. I, 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 my granddaddy told me out of the Bible, and he says, well, your granddaddy was wrong because the Greek word there is exakinilata, and it means that it means the usahina, and if you don't have those words, and, uh, and the guy looks up and he says, wow, my granddaddy never talked like that. That's why you listen to me instead of your granddad. Did your granddad go to school? Well, he just graduated when he was in the third grade. He had to work on a farm. I've got two earned PhDs. Wow. I guess you really know what you're talking about. I do. I'll listen to you. No, listen to your granddaddy. Because at the end of the day, your granddaddy was right, and he's in heaven, and this guy's going to wind up in a lake of fire. Don't meddle with them that are given the change. I have no use for it. No use for it at all. Charismatic movement has absolutely no doctrine, no Bible, no nothing. It's the biggest joke in 6,000 years of history. Their churches are IHOP. Whatever that means. International health, international, whatever it means. Pentecostal churches, four square churches, 700 club, PTL club. Jim Baker, all these guys get up there, and, uh, and all these guys, they have no Bible, they have no doctrine, everything is based on, on something that was given to the nation of Israel. And of course, the college here in town for that would be IHOP. Go to the other one and get pancakes, don't go to that one. They have fake healing and fake tongues, all stolen from the nation of Israel, tried to be put into the church. And I'm not going to go through it. I wrote a book on it, The Charismatic Movement. I get it, give it to your friends. It'll cure them or kill them, I guarantee you. <laughs> now, these three cult groups have taken over Bible, New Testament, Christianity over the course of the last hundred years, and they've affected the change. These three have destroyed the fundamental truth of everything that God gave us. They changed everything. They've done for Christianity what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees did to the nation of Israel. And you can just, I mean, five major areas of change. First of all, was in a change of music. We sing the old hymns of the faith, found in that book right here called the Great Hymns of the Faith. If you look at the dates of those, uh, 99% of them are written during the Philadelphian church age when the Bible was premier. Now, I'm not against new songs. I think that you guys sing new songs, and it's good, and I like that. But you know what? It's, it, when you got to go to a church, and if you close your eyes, you could be in a nightclub someplace, you're in trouble. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It starts in your heart, and then what's in your heart comes out. Saw so a change in preaching. 
the greatest definitive chapter of what a preacher ought to be is Jeremiah chapter 1, when God sent Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. And he told him to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down. That's preaching. You won't hear that today in any neo-evangelical church and in most Baptist church. They won't root out anything. They won't pull down nothing. They won't destroy anything. They won't throw down anything. And because of that, they can't build and plant. And that's why I'll go on record as saying this. Most of these guys in this neo-evangelical churches, or the churches that took Baptist off their name, they got great crowds. But you know what? I'll say one thing. I'd put any one of you guys up against any five of them when it comes to the Bible. You know why? Because they've never rooted out anything. They never pulled down anything. Shoot, they still social drink. They still do all the things they want to do. They brought in psychology and gotten rid of the Bible. Are you kidding me? And then there was a change in the church. If you want to find out what a New Testament church should be, you want to go to Ephesians chapter 20, and you want to go to Acts chapter 12 and 13. You'll find in Ephesians chapter 20 the six things that a church should be doing. That's the last church that Paul goes to before he goes to Jerusalem. And when he leaves them, it's a terrible emotional time, and he charges them with six things that they're not to change. You want to go to the beginning, Acts chapter 12 and 13, to the church of Antioch, there are seven things that they're doing. And we're never to change those things. Changing the importance of doctrine. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 said, doctrine's number one. We've replaced doctrine with theology. We've replaced doctrine with, with uh, psychology, like Colossians chapter 1 says. And then we saw a change in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says that God has a seed and the devil has a seed. You missed that. You didn't go three chapters in the Bible because you were told the devil has a seed. And then if you want to do a little Bible study, God forbid, go over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 23 and tells you that the seed is the word of God and there's an incorruptible seed and there is a corruptible seed. And I go back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Now, along with Proverbs chapter 24, let me move you in here to another book that I want you to see. It'll be the book of Lamentations. The book of Jeremiah and Lamentations go hand in hand. In the book of Jeremiah, he preaches, the book breaks down around three sections of sermons. Jeremiah is a pre-exilic book. It's before they go into the exile. And Jeremiah is preaching. And Jeremiah is preaching in the first section. He's preaching about the fate that's going to happen to Judah. In the second chapters, he's going to preach on the fate that's going to happen to Jerusalem. Remember, they're split now. And in the third section, he's going to preach the fate of what's going to happen to the Gentiles. And all this was written right before, right before God's judgment came down and, and destroyed them with a foreign nation. Doctrinally, I get it. It's to Israel. Inspirationally, it's to you and me in 2018. And I want you to look at Lamentations chapter 4, verse 1. This goes right along with what Proverbs 24 says about not mingling, uh, meddling with those who are given to change. And the book of Lamentations is a, is a book that goes along with Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, he talked about God's coming judgment. And in 
book of Lamentations, Lamentations means lament. Now he's, they're lamenting over God's coming judgment, and boy, he's going to kick the fire out of them. And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, here's Israel's problem, and this is our problem today. Listen very carefully as I read it. How has the gold become dim? And how has the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. Now this verse will be an incredible verse and an eye-opening verse that goes along with Proverbs 24, 21. The context is Israel losing their perspective of God and who He is in their life. And they're relegating the knowledge of God to a foreign, graven, false image or worship. Now, he says, how has the gold become dim? Gold in the Bible will always be a reference to the deity of Christ. The Old Testament tabernacle was made out of wood, and then it was overlaid with gold. The wood shows the humanity of Christ. The gold shows the deity of Christ. Everything in the tabernacle was made of gold, all the furniture, because gold is a picture of the deity of Christ and the Word of God. Psalms 119. And uh, the Old Testament tabernacle and temple uh, was uh, completely overlaid with gold and completely covered with everything because gold was the highest standard. And here, in Israel's time, he says, keeping in mind what the gold represents as far as God's concerned, he says the gold has become dim. Psalms 119, verse 127, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. And the Bible says, with that verse in mind, that God's people today, the gold has become dim. Psalms 19, verses 9 and 10, God's judgment and truth are to be desired more than gold, more than fine gold. And God's people today have looked at that gold of the Word of God, and the gold has become dim. Psalms 119, verse 72, The law of thy mouth is better than thousands of gold and silver. The words out of his mouth not only represent who God is and the deity of Christ, it represents the word of God, which is the words out of his mouth that you and I are to esteem as the highest value man ever placed on anything, the gold standard. And today, because of meddling with those who are given to change, the gold, has become dim. That book don't mean anything to us anymore. As a Baptist, there's eight distinctives, major ones, that have been handed down through the centuries of the New Testament church. These eight, I would say, at least in the beginning of the fundamentals, are the eight gold standards of what New Testament Christianity is. You're told in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said, And the things that hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. In other words, what I'm saying when the book of Acts chapter 12 and 13, or 11, 12, and 13, laid out the concept of the church at Antioch, that church had some things that God gave them through Paul. That church was to hand down those things in an unbroken chain of Bible teaching and Bible doctrine to the coming generation that every man that heard what Paul said and taught would get it, and then he was to pass it on. What are they? 
Number one, salvation is only by the blood of Christ. Two, the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three, the eternal security of the believer. Four, the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Five, the rupture of the church before that return. Six, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seven, only two offices for the church. One was a pastor, the other one was for the deacons. And number eight, the King James 1611 authorized version was the only true, absolute, perfect word of God given by God to God's people. Those have stood for 2,000 years. And we get cops, we get called a cult. We get called crazy. We get called like we're dangerous. You're right. We are dangerous. You're so idiotic in your concepts. You're so absolutely stupid in your theology. You look at me and you have no clue for 2,000 years what we stand for today and believe today started way back in the church at Antioch. By 12150, Donatus had it. Then the Novatians had it. Then the Monetians had it. Then the Waldensians had it. Then the Lollards had it. Then the Polyseans had it. Then the Huguenots had it. Then the Hussites had it. Then the, then the, uh, the uh, Anabaptists had it. And then the Baptists had it. And it was passed right down the line. You pile gave it to Dr. Ruckman. Dr. Ruckman gave it to Mel Sabaka. Mel Sabaka gave it to me. I give it to you. Amen. That's what we do. Listen, from 1600 to 1900, that King James Bible was the gold standard of every saved man on earth. You didn't go into a bookstore and find 2,500 other versions. You had two. You had the God-honored King James 1611, and you had the devil's Bible to do a reams of the Roman Catholic Church. You go into a bookstore today, and because of all the Sadducees, all the Pharisees, all of what they tell you, you actually think there's a bunch of Bibles out there to choose from. There's still only two. There's that time God-honored Bible right there, and in every other translation, every one of them, including the New King James Bible, is out of the Roman Catholic Church manuscripts. And do you think there's something wrong with me? Come on Thursday night, pal. We'll find out who's got the problem. For 400 years, it was responsible for more souls being saved, more churches being started, missions around the world to the tune uh, that there were three, uh, three quarters of the world had come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. A time unparalleled in the history of the church where Revelation chapter 3, when John wrote, he called it the church of the open door. And God said, well, I open it, no man can shut it. And the reason God opened it is found there in 3.8 of Revelation chapter 3 verse 8 that it was a church that kept his word. And that word was not an NIV. It wasn't a new King James. 
It wasn't some new godless piece of trash out of the pit of hell, out of the Roman Catholic manuscript. It was a God-honored book that God held high for 400 years that he gave man a common Bible to a common man because God wanted you, not scholarship, you and me, not the educators, you and me to take a stand and to carry on that unbroken chain. Then in 1900, 2018, it all changed, began to change through the damnable satanic influx of those three cult groups. The neo-orthodoxy crowd, the neo-evangelical crowd, which everybody loves today. Oh, the great Bible teachers. Oh, the great megachurches. All the Baptists dumping Baptists because you want to have a megachurch like them. Where the judgment seat of Christ, pal? When you got to stand there up beside an Al-Aldensian or an Albigensian or a Polysian or a Hussite that gave up their own family who lost them to the torture or were tortured themselves all because they wouldn't deny that book. They watched their kid be eaten alive by pigs. They had their eyes put out with hot pokers. Women had hot iron run up inside of them. They were castrated. They were beat to death. They were fed to the lions. And they would not give up that book that you give it up. Why? Because you want a big church? God help us. What's wrong with us? We changed. And it started by men who thought they were smarter than God, meddling with other men who thought they were smarter than God, and changed the very principles that God gave us. And anybody that won't change from that book that God bathed the world in from 1600 to 1900 is now a cult. When just 120 years ago, everybody on planet Earth knew that the King James 1611 authorized version was the absolute perfect God-honored Word of God. What happened? It changed. Very slowly, with a purpose and a design. Oh, I wish I had time to show you the influx of the Roman Catholic through the Jesuit system into Christianity, into the educated system of neo-orthodoxy and neo-evangelicalism. Oh, I wish I had the time this morning. The real issue that Israel had with God is the same one that we have. It's the fact that we have meddled with those who want to change and have allowed them to make God's gold dim in our lives. That book no longer holds the luster that it once had. We've replaced it with tongues. We've replaced it with healing. We've replaced it with education. We've replaced it with degrees. We've replaced it with big churches. And the gold has become dim. Then he says, how is the most fine gold changed? Now, well, gold will be God and the Word of God and the deity of Christ. The fine gold will always be a reference to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in your personal life. And you'll find this in the book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. And you know what the book of Song of Solomon is about. It's a great love book. It's a great book of God telling you how he thinks of you and what he thinks when he sees you. And then it tells you what you ought to think when you see him. 
It's the great book of a, two people going back and forth and telling each other how much they love each other based on the qualities that they each have for each other. And he says in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, this is the woman talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. This ought to be every child of God in this room this morning and your love relationship with the one who died for you. My beloved, verse 10, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. You know he is. He's better than any hero you kids have ever put your, your hero ship in. He's better than any role model you'll ever find in any ball player, any hockey player, any basketball player. He's better than them all. You know why? Because he's the chiefest among 10,000. He's the greatest model in the history of the world for what right is. Now look at verse 11. His head is as the most fine gold. There it is. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are the eyes of doves by the river of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet, smelling mirth. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. His belly as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble. See, he doesn't change. Marble's the hardest rock known to man. His legs are like marble. You know why? Because he's fixed. He doesn't move. His legs are pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine, fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I want you to see there, it says his head is the most fine gold. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it says the head of every man is Christ. And just like the, just like the, just like the, the, the gold has become dim, the fine gold has been changed. The holiness of Christ, His standard of truth in our lives, what He's for, what He's against, what He loves and what He hates, it's all been confused today. We're now living in Isaiah 5 verse 20 when He prophesied that evil will be called good and good be called evil. That's where we're at. Hosea saw it coming in 8.12 when he said the, greatest, the great things of God have now become strange things. The great doctrines of the Bible that we teach on Thursday night when the evangelicals here, the neo-orthodox here, the charismatic, oh man, where did that come from? The Bible. Amen. It came from the Bible. The great things of the Bible have now become strange things to you because the gold has become dim and you've lost the luster of the most fine gold. It's been changed. Hosea saw it, Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, 2, and 3, when he says that there's no truth, there's no mercy, there's no knowledge of God in the land. Micah saw it in Micah 2, 11, when he says, today a man is following a spirit of falsehood. Isaiah saw it in Isaiah 29, 13, when he says, we have a head knowledge, but uh, the heart knows nothing of God. We give him lip service. We tell him what he wants to hear without ever affecting any change. Malachi saw it in Malachi 1.28 when he says that the churches today have polluted bread with polluted sacrifices. And all this is because God gave us a perfect book and read it sometime, Jeremiah chapter 23. Two verses you want to look at in that chapter. One of them is verse 20 and the other one is verse 30. All this because God gave us a perfect book. 
Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20 says, In a latter day, God will give you a perfect book that you can consider the thing perfectly. And then verse 30 will tell you that somebody came and stole it from you. Read it! And now Jeremiah 23, 25 says that you, you neo-evangelicals, you, you neo-orthodox, you, you charismatic, you live in a dream world called Christianity. It has nothing to do with God and the Bible. Read it, Jeremiah 23, verse 25. Why? Because the gold has become dim and the fine gold has been changed. And you and I have been warned not to meddle not with them that are given to change. Now look at the last part of this verse. In Lamentations, the stones of the sanctuary are poured out on the top of every street. Stones of the sanctuary. That's Bible doctrine. Remember back there in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 9, when it says, Who shall we teach doctrine? And he talked about the building blocks, like building a, a wall, a course of a wall. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept. And the very stone that built that temple is the very Bible doctrine in the New Testament sense that you build your temple with. And the Bible says now they're in the street. They're laying in the street. Just as the prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 59, 14, when he said, And judgment is turned away backward, and judgment standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street. And today the stones of the sanctuary... The Bible doctrines, the building blocks of your temple to make you strong, sure, have fallen in the streets. Look back at Proverbs 24. Look at 22 and 23. For their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both. Now that's a good word to describe the child of God's life today without the word of God. A calamity. One mess after another. A joke. People who go to church, who care nothing for the things of God, nothing for the Word of God. Thing people who will drop going to church at a at, at a at a in a second to go do what they want to do. They don't read their Bibles. They don't care about their Bibles. For them, I'm not sure what it is other than a calamity. God's people's lives, one disaster after another, one bad marriage after another, losing one child after another. No victory, no rest, no peace. A Christian life, that is a total calamity. Now look at verse 23. Now a great verse with a great principle to me. These things also belong to the wise. It is good to have respect of a person in judgment. Now let me say this. I've been around for a while. I've known pastors who that were my friends. Some of them still are. And over the time, they changed their stand on the Word of God. I came out of a church back in Ohio that started strong on believing the Bible and then went into apostasy by the time I was ready to leave it. I've seen churches who once held the truth of the Word of God, and now they have changed, taken Baptist off their names, don't want to be associated with the greatest doctrinal fight of Christianity. Men and women down through the, here, the, the centuries of Christianity taking a stand against the Roman Catholic Church and their Bible and their doctrine who got awarded the name Baptist. 
And I know there's a lot of goofy Baptists. I get it. Men and churches who once were Baptists and stood for the center and fundamentals of the faith are now just a church without any truth. I've had any a young man over my years that I taught the Bible and trained in the ministry who knew better. But when they got out there on their own, they got seduced by education. They got seduced by the glamour of the neo-evangelical world. And almost every one of them walked away from the King James Bible. Walked away from the truth that they were trained. Many of them renounced the very truth that were taught to them. And they picked up this gray mush for a megachurch concept. Now they have, they have little cable talks on Sunday morning. Now they have little skits. Now they have little music presentations. Now they have rock bands. Now they have this. Now they have that. They have everything to draw people in except the one thing that will draw them in, and that is truth. Somebody says, well, we just do things like that so we can bring people to church. Where do you draw the line? Four or five years ago, Unity was showing pornographic films in their churches so people would come to church. Where do you draw the line? I'll tell you where to draw the line. I'll just preach the book. I'll do what Jesus did. He never showed a movie. He never had a rock band. He never deviated from one thing that he said to Israel in over 4,000 years. And we suddenly think when the 2,000 years of Christianity, he changed it all. Billy Sunday wasted his time preaching against alcohol because now it's okay. All I can say is this. At almost 50 years of preaching and teaching the Bible. Now you can prove this. I've not changed one doctrine of my biblical standard or my belief. I've learned a lot of things that I thought were stupid and changed. I started preaching in 1973. You can go back probably 75, 76, 80 to 90s, and you can find tapes of me, and you will see I'm preaching today exactly what I believed and preached back then. I've not changed one thing. You use the discipleship lessons, and you get discipled. Most of you don't know. I wrote those discipleship lessons in 1977. They haven't changed one inch of the doctrine that's in them in all those years. My two first books that I ever wrote was the How to Study the Bible in probably 1979 and, and the Charismatic Movement in 1980, 1981. How many years ago was that? I still believe everything in those books won't change one thing, won't go back and put a preface in it and said, oh, I didn't mean this. Amen. I meant what I said because it's out of the book. Amen. I have stayed away and never meddled with those that are given to change because God doesn't change. The principles don't change. The book doesn't change. Everybody wants to reinvent the wheel and starting a church today. Find something new and exciting to attract people. Let me tell you, I'll give you some good advice. You want to build a church? Jesus said it himself. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto him. Amen. You just preach the book, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, exalt the word of God that he gave you, and let the result be in God's hands. I've stayed with the old paths, 
the old way in the old book. The same thing that built those churches in Acts chapter 20, the church at Ephesus, and Acts chapter 11, 12, and 13 in Antioch will work today. It's just a matter that we've lost any sense of reality. We are so into change. Our society has changed so much, and now our Christianity not only has an evolving Bible, now we have an evolving lifestyle that we are evolving just like the world. Where once the church was separate from the world, now we've invited the world into it. And we think God's okay with that. Well, we'll hold up there.